Hello and welcome to the One Football Podcast. Coming up on today's show, we're talking Women's World Cup, La Liga, Premier League, and Serie A. I'm Dan Burke, and I've got a co-host with me today. It's Lewis Ambrose. Thank you for having me. To I don't know, do I say that if I co-host? Do I, are you having me here, or am I just here with you, welcoming guests? Does the co-pilot thank the pilot? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> How's it going anyway? Did you have a good summer? Uh, yeah, I've had a, an enjoyable summer. Thank you. Um, but I'm. I'm happy that. Well, I was going to say that we're into the swing of things with football again, but with the women's World Cup, never stopped, did it? Uh, no, it, it really didn't. I'm exhausted. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, on that theme, our first guest today is Alejandro Diago. Buenos dias, Ali. Buenos dias. How are you doing, guys? Very well. How are you doing, España campeón del mundo? Finally, 30, 13 years after 13 years of South Africa, still. Australia is going to be in our golden book of history and golden book of memories for women's football. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, what, what, uh, how, how are you feeling about Spain's victory? What, what does it mean for, for women's football in Spain, would you say? Really, I think not only for women's football, but for women's sport, it can be the boost they need. Even if Spain, women's sport in Spain has been performing excellently through the, throughout the years. I mean, Spain has got world champions in many sports and many disciplines in athletics, in gymnastics, in have had important achievements in, in, in team sports teams such as basketball, uh, handball, field hockey. Really, I think that this Women's World Cup uh, won by Spain the last, last Sunday would be the boost it, the women's sports needs to get a proper coverage, proper recognition, proper uh, fans, and in, on, to sum up, proper everything in Spain. Fantastic. It sounds it sounds like a like a bright bright future. I mean Spain have dominated the youth scene for a while with especially this generation of of players coming through yeah. and the, the, they've now obviously a lot of them have been a part of Barcelona's massive success and now world champions. What's sort of in the pipeline? Cuz like in England for example there's this kind of golden generation right now, obviously, but the youth teams right now aren't performing particularly well. Uh, I saw Alexia Poteas talking about this being necessary for it to be a push and not just like a crowning glory, but this now has to put pressure on the RFEF and on Liga F to really invest and put the foot down and go for it and, and use this to create real momentum for the women's game. Are you optimistic it'll be that or are you a little bit wary and cautious and think that maybe there will be sort of a bit of, I don't know, arrogance and and thinking, well, we've won the World Cup, so we're already doing everything great instead of increasing investment off the back of this? Uh, I would like to be optimistic and I want to be optimistic because I want, I, I want to think that uh, finally Spain can be able to get aside the difference and, 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 and fight together for a common goal. But what is happening, what has happened the days after this situation, this uh, victory of, of the Women's World Cup is making me think that uh, we are, we are more focusing on internal fights, internal, internal issues. And we are going to for we are going to forget uh, the important things. For example, you talk about Liga F and the and the new and the new situation that they are. Uh, Alexia Potellas uh, uh, said after the final that she wanted more more, uh, more 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 investment, more funds for the for the players, and uh, more, in, more more investments in the competition. Uh, but the thing is that the situation now for the Liga F is that they are renegotiating a, a CBA agreement. And the thing is that uh, 
the, the positions between the players, the league and the federation, they are still uh, very long ones from uh, every other. I don't know how the situation will end, but the situation now, it makes me, I want to be optimistic, but if I see the reality that we are having nowadays, it's very difficult for me to keep this optimism following women's football. Yeah, it's uh, well. It's been a strange tournament for Spain. I think they were undoubtedly the uh, the worthy winners, the best team at the tournament. It was a triumph over adversity in many ways with the uh, the Jorge Vilda situation. Could you just explain to people, Ali, who perhaps aren't that familiar with the story, what the situation around Vilda was? You know, with the players that pulled out before the tournament had even began. Well, the situation is is, is very easy to sum up. The situation is that uh, last last September, one year ago. Uh, 15 players sent an email saying that they didn't want to be called again for the Spanish national team until the Spanish national team gets proper investments, gets proper uh, coverages and gets proper uh, uh, resources such as men's national team. Those 15, those 15 players, uh, they were they, many of them uh, were from FC Barcelona, but not only from FC Barcelona, maybe uh, they, were, they, they were also from other teams such as Atletico Madrid, Real Sociedad, Athletic Club. And the situation started when, uh, as Jorge, when Jorge Bilda uh, started to call other players, other players as to replace these 15 players that they didn't want to come to the national team. Following the month, the, uh, also these 15 players had three very important uh, supports that they were Jennifer Hermoso, Alexia Putellas and Irene Paredes. These three players they did they weren't part of this 15 players group who sent the email but they positioned public uh, on public supporting these 15 players and asking for more resources and investment for the women's national team and when as the, as the months were passing by these three players came back to the national team uh, also some of the players they were they, they there were some uh, there, there were some some uh, some agreements that uh, to be, to become closer to them and try to if they were if they were able to come back for to play for the national for the national team in the future and when Jorge Villa released the 23 players uh, list for the women's world cup uh, we discovered that they were three players of these 15 players who were in the list uh, i think mm. now they were Aitana Bombati Mariona Caldente and uh, i think they're missing one but yeah they were those three players and uh, finally, finally, they were, play, were able to play the World Cup and the situation. And during the during the team's uh, uh, moment in in Australia, and New Zealand was okay. They weren't they, they were they weren't any problems in the in the in the team. And finally, they were able to become world champions. And, and I mean, yeah, resources is one thing. Like I think respect as well. And and Fielder has been accused of of like some really draconian measures in training camps you know players having to leave their hotel doors open overnight yeah. so that he knows that they're in bed and sleeping and uh, their bags being rifled through when they arrive at training and then they leave the training camp and come back again i don't know go out for dinner i don't know what international footballers do <laughs> on training camps but their bags being checked you know when they would leave the the hotel say and then and then come back again in the evening and those kinds of things real like things that are hard to imagine would ever happen to some of the elite men's players in mm. world football. Um, uh, Ali, I guess like the the situation with Rubiales now and his his position in the REF, RFEF and 
if that's under threat, uh, how seriously do you think the chances are that he might be forced out as president? And what do you think that could mean? He's obviously been the man who stood by Jorge Vilda through all of this. Do you think that means that Spain might have a new coach again in the next in the coming months? Well, the situation we need to see what is happening tomorrow in a in a in a extraordinary general assembly from the Spanish Football Association. Tomorrow there is a there is this meeting where all the all the people who integrate this assembly that is the one who uh, cho- who votes for the president of the Football Association uh, they will show their support to Rubiales. But the situation is that uh, from the government. They are pushing for Rubiales to get out of the Spanish Football Association. Uh, on Tuesday, when Spain's women's national team, they were welcoming uh, the head, the, the, the home of the Spanish government in Palacio de la Moncloa, uh, the Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez uh, told that the situation Luis Rubiales did in Australia in the celebration of the World Cup was unacceptable and it requires of proper measures. That message has been shared by all the members of the Spanish government. And also, uh, just from yesterday now, it starts to, 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 to move around the rumor that probably the thing is that uh, uh, Luis Rubiales could, be, uh, could get an, a six-month inhabilitation from the Spanish FA and he could, uh, he could uh, so that he could run again in 2024. I don't know what is, what is going to be the situation in, in six months. I don't know. If Luis Rubiales is going to resign or not, I think he should do it because uh, really it's not the first uh, bad behavior that we have seen of Luis Rubiales and the first uh, controversial moment of his uh, period on the Spanish FA. We can, we can tell many things, for example, we can tell the agreements with Saudi Arabia and uh, the, the way he, he said that they were defending women in that country because I don't know. I don't know if you remember that in that in a press conference he said Luis Rubiales hosted. He said that because of the Spanish FA, they were helping the, the in the women in Saudi Arabia because they built toilets for women in the stadiums <laughs> as they didn't have before. Uh, really, I'm very pessimistic that Luis Rubiales leaves the federation. And about Jorge Vilda, I think that uh, I don't know if uh, after after winning the World Cup, uh, probably. They, they will not touch him because uh, it will be very weird that the Spanish FA uh, removes the coach that has that has made the team a world champion and more, and more a coach that is supported by the actual uh, this general assembly of the, of the general assembly of the of the Spanish FA and he has a, a vote to keep Rubiales in power. Yeah, the uh, RFEF's tweet after the game was Vilda in, wasn't it? Which was uh, probably quite instructive of their feelings towards him. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the the final now. Um, I've I have to say, I felt really good about England's chances uh, going into the final. Uh, was very disappointed with with how they performed. Why do you think, Lewis, that England couldn't get going in the final? Um, I, <laughs> I think Spain were too good to begin with, <laughs> uh, and then I think Serena Wiegmann was too slow to make changes, and when she made changes, they were the wrong ones. Uh, we always know with Spain, this this kind of looked a lot like the the game the teams played at the Euros last summer. And Spain, just with their technical superiority, sort of dominated the ball, dominated possession. It's the they're the only team England have come up against or did come up against this summer who could do that to them, who could put them on the back foot and make them defend for long spells. And just the that that quality, I mean, Atana Bomati in particular 
uh, England, like mm-hmm. pretty much everyone except Japan in the tournament, uh, couldn't get near her, couldn't get the ball off her, couldn't rush her into mistakes. You know, the, one of those players who just looks like they have time on the ball at every single moment. Mm-hmm. Um, incredible quality. England, on the other hand, I mean, the goal itself just comes from, I think, a really, really poor moment, a sloppy moment from Lucy Bronze that she doesn't chase back from. Uh, I don't Lucy really Bronze have, had a shocker, I think, didn't she? I think I don't say, understand yeah. in a World Cup final how you give the ball away in the middle of the pitch as the, mm. the sort of the right wing back, and then you stand there frustrated with yourself, sort of swinging your arms about instead of like you. This is a World Cup final. Like you're not down the park. You're not playing by the side with your mates in a World Cup final to not have the drive. I understand the level of frustration she had with herself, but then just like you have to give everything to get back into position. She just stood on the halfway line, frustrated and annoyed. And she was much more frustrated and annoyed, I'm sure, 15 seconds later. Um, yeah, and I think England, obviously, the change to this back three quite early in the tournament after mm. struggling early on. I think it's does, Serena Vigman deserves enormous credit. The players that England went to Australia without. Captain Leah Williamson, player of the tournament at last summer Euros and top scorer Beth Mead, uh, Frank Kirby in midfield as well. So, uh, I mean, Ellen White started every game at that Euros as well and has retired since then. So really, England went to this tournament with as European champions, but with four of the starting 11 from last summer unavailable, which is already a massive change. They started quite slowly against Haiti and Denmark. And then the shift to a back three just seemed to bring everything to life and got Rachel Daly back in the side as, as a wing back. But in the final, it, it, that changed to a back four. It happened at half time, and England were just not in the game at all. It happened to happen much earlier and it could have happened without any subs, you know, with mm. Daly's a striker Daly, you know, she's playing left back for England. Yeah. She played up front for Aston Villa all season. She scored a goal a game in the WSL. She could have moved forward up the wing and, and England could have shifted Carter to left back and, and gone with a back four as they did obviously at half time. And then at half time, when Vigman made those change, probably a bit late, she took Daly off and she took Alessia Russo off and had sort of a, almost a false nine with Lauren Hemp up front. And when that England just lost their focal point, Bethany England came on really late. It was too late by then to have a real number nine have any impact on the game. You know, I think Spain, as you said, Dan, were excellent and and probably the best, bar 90 minutes against, or 45 minutes really against Japan, were the best team at the entire tournament. And when you're playing the best team and and a team that can dominate possession and dominate the game, you can't afford to make mistakes. You can't afford to make mistakes on the pitch but also off it in terms of selection and not reacting quickly enough to make those changes so yeah it's a 90 minute game and you only get one shot at it there's no second leg there's no wild card and England got their game plan wrong mm. yeah I do wonder how it might have panned out if that Lauren uh, Hemp effort had hit, hit, not hit the bar and gone in in the very early in the game wasn't it that one after about mm. 10 minutes yeah come a different game Ali there's a lot of talk in, um, in England at the moment about Serena Vigman's future she has committed her, her future to England until at least 2025 but people are talking about oh should she be the next England men's national team coach should she be the uh, men's uh, Netherlands national team coach I mean to me I feel like somebody like her should stay clear of men's football and just become a beacon of brilliance in the in the women's game you know I don't like this this sort of idea that always gets floated that the men's game is kind of a a step up a reward for people who succeed in the women's game and you know that that should be the the, the ultimate goal would you agree with that would you think Vigman would be better off steering clear of the men's game I agree with your position Dan I agree that Sarina Vigman needs to stay some more years in England she, she can 
I think England has made a strong team in the world. I think England is now one of the top teams in women's football. And I think uh, even if they lose this final against Spain, they can become champions of Europe again in a couple of years. Uh, you, uh, you, were, you were mentioning that she's, uh, she, there has been rumours that to get that she could be the next England's men's national team head coach or even the Netherlands men's national team head coach. Look, even if I think that uh, Sharina Wigman is 10 times better coach as, as than Ronald Koeman, I think Sharina should should stay in England yeah. uh, by the moment. <laughs> <laughs> just what you said, Dan, as well. Like, it's like it's a reward or just automatically a step up as yeah. if she's not just... <laughs> one one European Championships and then led a team to a World Cup final like that is already the pinnacle. Why is I don't know coaching the Netherlands or England or anybody else in the men's game? It's always, there's always people who throw Emma Hayes' name in the ring right every yeah. two months when Chelsea sack their manager, and it's like, well, she already coaches in the Champions League and wins a league title or an FA Cup every season. Like, why? Who's to say that? Like, it's more money. It would be more money, sure. Um, but, you know, and, and what you said too about Wiegmann being and becoming a beacon for the women's game too. It's like these women are, have fought so hard to even get to mm. where they are and to take the sport to where it is. And then it's like they would be really doing it a disservice to then walk away the first time that a big men's job comes up is like that they themselves would be admitting or, or saying that the men's game is is higher or it's more of an elite level to reach and I think it, yeah it would be a big step back for the women's game and, and a massive massive shame yeah and I, totally agree. I, I'm sure we'll still see women in positions you know coaching positions more and more at men's football clubs but and maybe even a crossover you know between coaches who switch from men's to women's and vice versa but I don't think we'll see necessarily women who go far in the women's game then switching to the men's game. I think it would really do a disservice to yeah. the entire institution. I think what what women what women's football needs it's uh, elite coaches, no matter the gender, no matter where they come from. Elite coaches. Uh, I mm -hmm. think, for example, we were discussing in Spain some months ago about Jorge Vilda. My question is for you guys: Would you think Jorge Vilda has 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 enough level? to become Spain's men's national team head coach? I, I I think you look at these players and Jorge Vilda, I, I don't think it's that hard to win with Spain. <laughs> I don't know what job he's done. Like the, that job's been done at Barcelona, more or less, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, no, no nothing more to say, really. Nothing more <laughs> to say. The thing is that uh, we need more elite coaches in, in women's football. And I think uh, it, it also starts from, this, from the federations, from the programmes, Giving that importance of women's game, no, no, do, 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 do not, do not taking care if they are men or women, just elite coaches. Period. Yeah. The the other thing about you know the sort of idea that the men's game is a way to sort of graduate from the women's game, I suppose, is that you know I could imagine you, we know what the English media is like. Serena Veenman takes the England men's job, you know, fails at a tournament or something. Before you know it, people are devaluing her achievements that she's achieved mm. in the women's game as well, and saying, oh, you know, she's not that good or you know, photoshopping her head onto a, a turnip on the front of the sun or something, you know, it's just like, I, I just think for her, it's just it's not worth the hassle and for for elite coaches in the women's game. Uh, let's wrap up on the uh, the Women's World Cup now by talking about the player of the tournament. Who, uh, who would you go for, Lewis? Yeah, I, I think, you know, Bon Matty won it and for me, it'd be very hard to to look elsewhere. Um, yeah, I, I don't have much more to say. I think, she, I think she was the best player of the tournament by yeah. a mile. Any notable mentions for you, Ali, for anyone else who's uh, emerged from the tournament with their reputation enhanced? 
I will say even more than Bob, than Bob Matti that she has made a very good tournament. I'll say even Salma Paraguelo. Yes, she was excellent. Salma Paraguelo. Yeah. I think that she has been the clutch player of Spain. Uh, whenever she has entered into the, into the pitch, she has changed the destiny of the game. Uh, she, she she has a speed. She, her background as as a track and field athlete we have seen in, in in the pitch during this World Cup, and it's so cool that having a player of these characteristics. Football is very is very uh, blessed to have a player of these characteristics as Salma Barayuelo, really. Yeah. And one from England that I would shout out as well is uh, Jess Carter. I thought she was excellent throughout, probably England's mm-hmm. unsung hero. Uh, actually, last question on the Women's World Cup. I wanted to ask about the um, the VAR thing and uh, you know announcing it to the, the decision to the crowd. Did that I make any difference? It. Did that, was I that love it. <laughs> You love it, Ali. I'm, I'm like, yeah. when the ref says penalty and then they point at the penalty spot, I'm like, well, I know it's a penalty. You're pointing yeah. at the penalty spot. Yeah, but, but really, it's something that we should implement in football as soon as we can because it gives this a spectacular moment, this, this drama moment also. It's like, it's like in the NFL. It's, it's like this moment when the ref talks in the NFL and, and every, everyone in the stadium is on tension waiting for the decision of the ref. Really, I think this is the one of the most intelligent things FIFA has done in years. So I fully agree and I hope that we can see more and more in all the football leagues and in all the football tournaments. I'll agree to disagree. I'd like to hear <laughs> I don't know about you, Dan. I'd I'd like to hear the conversation between like when the yeah, ref yeah. goes to the screen and then they're speaking to the people in the VAR room. I'd like to hear that conversation. Yeah, That's what I want too, the microphone sure. to be turned on for. Yeah, yeah. They released some of that footage from the Premier League last season, didn't they? But it was uh, you know, very carefully orchestrated, I think. The, the, the ones that when the when the referees made the right decision, uh didn't uh, show us what went on when they made the wrong decision. Stay with us now. Ali is uh, is here and we're going to talk about La Liga. Uh, Ali, you are, of course, a big Real Madrid fan and uh, Real Madrid have made a pretty solid start to the season. Have you been impressed by what you've seen and particularly from Jude Bellingham? Really, I think Jude Bellingham is the signing of the summer. Really, we are still with the rumours of Mbappé if he's coming. I don't care, really. <laughs> Having Jude Bellingham, this this boy is wonderful and it's so cool to have him to have it in, in a team, in our team. And it's a player that also has understood perfectly what is Real Madrid and how to behave in the pitch as a Real Madrid player, really. Mm. I hope that he, ha- he can keep this level for many years. And the good thing is also he's a player that makes better other players because, for example, along with him, Vinicius is shining more and having more chances. Along with him, Rodrigo is shining more and having more chances and scoring more goals. Really, uh, Bellingham is, is the best thing. It has, it has happened to Real Madrid in many, in many years. Yeah, Jude Bellingham, Club de Football, no? <laughs> Not at all. I'm sorry because Real Madrid is very big, but it's a, it's a generational player. Let's, let's, let's see it on this way. Generational player. He absolutely is. You mentioned Vinicius and, and Rodrigo there as well, and they're sort of they're sort of both playing up front, right? Like Real Madrid, obviously Benzema has gone. Real Madrid, you mentioned Mbappe. They haven't signed a striker, so Vinicius and Rodrigo are kind of sharing that role with Bellingham at the tip of a diamond midfield. Yeah. Do you think that's something for the long term, or would you? I mean, obviously, you'd like to see Real Madrid sign Mbappe. Do you think Real Madrid can win 
everything this year without a real striker? Or do you think this system, this new way of playing, will have its limitations? I don't know if to win everything because, you know, seasons, they are they are long and, and they are getting very longer year after year. But what I'm sure is that we are going to see a Real Madrid that is going to compete until the end in every tournament, really. It's a Real Madrid that they are, uh, it's a very, a, a very generous version of Real Madrid. We have seen also that even how, even, even though they, they don't have a, a pure striker, a pure, a pure number nine, as we had uh, with Benzema during these years. And I'm, I miss him in, in Saudi Arabia. I hope he's, he's doing very well there. But the thing is that, uh, <laughs> thing is that, uh, Real Madrid always competes. And this is a version of, of a, of a, of a very generous Real Madrid team. A, t- a team that cares about each other, a, a team that cares about uh, about all the players. How are they doing on the field? For example, we are seeing that even in defense, um, we we are suffering two a very important loss, Eder Militao. So, uh, Antonio Rudiger has give, has gone one step ahead, saying, "Don't worry, I can assume the role of Eder Militao, and I can fight a scheme. I can be a top centre back, and he's doing very well." So. I'm sure that we are going to see a Real Madrid that is going to fight until the end. Is there any uh, concern about the goalkeeping situation at Real Madrid, Ali? Obviously, uh, Thibaut Courtois ruled out for the for the season with a with an ACL injury. You've, you've brought in Kepa Arisa Balaga. I mean, I think it's fair to say he improved during his time at Chelsea, but he was still very unconvincing last season. Well, the thing is that Kepa Arisa Balaga is a, is a it was a petition as, as I read some weeks ago. It was a recommendation from the Real Madrid goalkeeper coach Luis Llopis. We are talking about one of goalkeepers, as you have seen in in, the, in in England, that is coming from very very hard seasons in Chelsea. But I think here he can get a he can get a second chance and become a, a top goalkeeper in in Europe. Uh, uh, Kepa has the levels. He was very close to come to Real Madrid in 2018, but Zidane uh, took down the signing on the on the on that uh, on that uh, winter winter uh, winter transfer market. But uh, we are, I'm, I'm sure that Kepa Arrizabalaga is going to be decisive for Real Madrid and we're going to see a top goalkeeper for Real Madrid in, 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 in the goalie. Sort of moving away from Real Madrid to just, a, well, a bit. There's, there's a, a relation there. I've just seen, obviously, Gabri Vega is moving to Saudi Arabia. Mm. Um, I've seen that Tony Kroos has commented on Fabrizio Romano's Instagram, calling it embarrassing. What's sort of the... <laughs> The feeling, the mood in Spain towards a towards players like Vega going to Saudi Arabia. I mean, obviously, he's a player tipped for an enormous future. He's been linked with a lot of Europe's biggest clubs this summer. Uh, are you on a personal level? Do you do you understand the move, or do you find it a bit disappointing? And what does it mean? Do you think for his chances of playing for the national team? I, I, to be honest, I find it very sad for the level of the league. Really, I find it very sad that we are losing. What is making what makes a league uh, growing up of level that is having a, a middle class that has very good players. For example, mm-hmm. Gabri Vega uh, in Celta Vigo, it, 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 he is the best player of Celta Vigo, and it, raised, and it was raising the level of the of the team. But now hearing that he's going to Saudi Arabia, 21 years old, for, uh, to get to earn more money, okay, it's respectable in terms of money. No one will say no. I understand that. But in sporting terms, really, it's hard to see and very sad for the league and very worrying in the in a in a in a mid to long term future, really, because um, 
the thing is that Europe is not is not going to be anymore now the center of uh, attention for for uh, young talented players. Uh, it's going to be Saudi Arabia. It's going to be maybe if the if in in the in the US uh, Messi rises up the MLS league and many people go to play to the US is going to be the United States in some years. It's something that the European leagues should worry about and think how can they deal with this because now we are seeing and we are starting to get sad. In three years, I don't know if, if we are going to be scared of those leagues. And do you think it will have an impact on his chances of playing for the national team? Mm, I don't know. That will depend on how the, how the coach will see him because, for example, if you see that uh, other other European talented young players they are going there to Saudi Arabia, and it seems that they are not go, they are not uh, the position in the national team is not is not on, in in risk. So let's see in the, for the next uh, for the first call up of September how Luis de la Fuente is going to deal with this Gabri Vega situation and if he's going to call him to play in the national team. Sticking on the uh, the theme of promising young players in La Liga, uh, I think Barcelona have uh, made a pretty unconvincing start to the season, but they do have uh, Lamine Yamal uh, really sh- uh, looking the part. Uh, 16 years old, what business does he have being that good at 16, Ali? Really, uh, have, with this level at 16, I hope the only thing I ask for Barcelona is that please take very well care of him because, for example, I remember that some years ago it happened a, a, a similar thing with Ansu Fati. He started in a wonderful way the season. He was, I mean, they were mentioning he is the the next the next the successor of Leo Messi, and the, all the injuries came back to him, and and they 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 destroyed a part of a career that is going to it was going to be uh, very promising. Lamin Yamal is looking good for sure. Lamin Yamal is very talented, of course, but please really on the ground, let the guy grow up uh, step by step, do not force him, do not, do not give him extra extra responsibilities, do not pressure him because I'm scared that it can we can have another case of like Ansu Fati. Before we move on, are there any surprises? Are there any young other young players? Is there anyone else we should watch out for in La Liga this season? Oof, uh, apart of apart of in in, Bar- in, in Barcelona, Lamin Yamal, I would say Fermin López. He's one of the of the ta- of the most talented players of Barcelona. He's going. To, I, I think Xavi is going to give him many chances. Also, I would say from in. Atlético de Madrid, uh, Pablo Barrios, I think he's going to have more minutes with Diego, with Diego Simeone. Uh, even though uh, Gabri Vega is going to leave to, to uh, Saudi Arabia, I think La Liga has quite a very interesting young talents to see and very interesting young talents that we can uh, enjoy this season. For example, also Rafa Marín, a former Real Madrid uh, academy player, he's going to be in Alaves. So it's going to be, it's going to be a very interesting season. From that side. Joining us now in part two to get stuck into the Premier League is Podrick Whelan. Podrick, how's it going? Good, good. Looking forward to getting stuck in again. <laughs> we do have some Serie R chats coming up a little bit later on with you as well. Uh, first question for you, though, actually, Lewis. Uh, you are, as regular listeners will know, an Arsenal fan, big Arsenal fan. Uh, have you been impressed with the uh, the start the Gunners have made? Uh, that's my answer. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, two wins out of two. You're not going to complain at that. I think both games have obviously been a bit closer than than you'd like. Um, it's a bit weird. You look at sort of the results and you're 2-1 at home against Nottingham Forest and 1-0 away and under a lot of pressure at the end of the game with 10 men against Crystal Palace. But I think if you look at the sort of the first hour of both games, the, the I mean, the Forest game a little bit longer, the first hour while it was 11 v 11 at, at Selhurst Park, which is always a tricky place to go anyway. Mm. And I think Arsenal were really firmly in control of both of those matches uh, and maybe didn't have, just didn't quite have the scoreline, didn't have the clear-cut chances to make that obvious to everybody. And then obviously in the Premier League, you're 2-0 up and you can see the goal from your own corner on the counter-attack and or you're 1-0 up away from home and you go down to 10 men and you're going to be struggling, I think, in the, the latter part of those games, no matter who you're playing against. So the results haven't been quite as comprehensive as as I'm sure anybody would have wanted uh, from an Arsenal perspective. But I actually think the performances have pretty much been okay and all of that while sort of trialling new things, you know, a bit of a new system, Thomas Partey playing right back and, and tucking into midfield while Alexander Zinchenko has been out bedding in with Declan Rice and Kai Havertz bedding in like two thirds of a, of a new midfield basically. Um, and Gabriel Jesus is out as well at the same time. So I think it could have gone a lot, lot worse than it's gone so far. And <laughs> if the team are sort of figuring out the kinks and picking up three points while they figure out the kinks, then hopefully the, the performances and the results will be a little bit more convincing and an overwhelmingly positive when they've actually figured those bits out as well. Indeed. I mean, you mentioned Gabriel Jesus there. I think my, if I was an Arsenal fan, Podrick, my worry would that be would be that perhaps Arsenal don't have enough goals to win the title in that team this season. I mean, and, and Ketty has done really well so far. Obviously scored on the opening day of the season, won the penalty the other night. Is that a, is that a problem for them, do you think? Uh, I don't think so. I think like, I think Havertz will get going and when he does, that's, I mean, I know, <clears throat> excuse me, I know he's not playing as further forward as he did with Chelsea, but I mean, even still in this Arsenal team, you could probably see him chipping in maybe 12 goals around that kind of range. Same with Odegaard. I mean, Lewis will probably know more than me, but I mean, there's probably no guarantee, even though it looks very likely that, I mean, if Balogun was to stick around in the end, I mean, the, the money that's being talked about, I guess, would be quite enticing for them to take that. And it's probably not a clear pathway unless there is injuries, obviously. But I mean, even having him around um, could be a boost for them. Like I said, Lewis will no more, and I can't probably can't really see it happening. He probably will go before the window closes. And then, like in Ketty is one of those. I, I just I think he's he's a really good player who will always. He, I don't think he's ever really let Arsenal down. Whenever I've watched them and watched him, and I think he, he gets kind of a not so much a bad rap I guess it's just because I guess a lot of clubs are guilty of doing it with, with their own players and the guys that come through you're maybe a bit harsher on them and because he's not the glamorous sexy name of like spending 30-40 million on yeah, someone like a Jesus or whoever it might be but yeah like I said he's never really let Arsenal down I, I wouldn't be worried about having to call upon him when Jesus is, is injured and out so like goals isn't something I'm too concerned with that, about with Arsenal and then even so far this season, they've, they've looked good defensively. So there's a lot to be, I think, a lot to be positive about with them. Yeah, I mean, like on the, I'd probably say, like Podrick says a little bit as well, I guess, compared to this this Haaland Man City where you know you've got a player that's going to score 30 goals at least. Um, it's going to be a bit more like when 
when Gundogan was top scorer for City a couple of years back. And mm. and like it was last season, I guess, for Arsenal, really, it's going to be a case of some of those players, Podrick mentioned, if Arsenal are going to compete and, and stay the distance and sort of run with City again for, for the majority or all of the season, it's going to require Havertz, Erdegaard, Saka, Martinelli, maybe someone like Smith Rowe and Ketia, Gabriel Jesus, obviously, Trossard. They're all going to be getting, you know, between eight. I forgot eight all about Trossard. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's going to have to be between sort of seven, eight, 15 goals for all of those players, yeah. which I think on the one hand, it does leave you short of a player who guarantees goals and a player who can maybe win you a tight game. On the other hand, what worked out quite well for Arsenal last season, I thought was... When Saka was off his game a little bit for a while, it felt like Martinelli stepped up and it felt like mm. when both of those two were struggling, then Odegaard would go on a little run. So there's sort of enough players to share the goals about. You just worry a little bit in those tight games. Who's the person? Who's the player that's going to win you that game on their own? Yeah, you've uh, you've certainly got plenty of depth in the goalkeeping department now with uh, the signing <laughs> of David Rea, which I think is a brilliant signing. I mean, the, the talk about that though is... Is it a good idea or a bad idea to sort of unsettle your goalkeeper? How, how do you see that playing out over the season, Lewis? Uh, oh, I think like, I think Mikel Arteta has been really clear about wanting to create that atmosphere, that culture of nobody just has their place. And I think it's a little bit more convincing when you make that the case for the goalkeeper as well. Uh, Matt Turner, I think, was was short last season of he didn't make a Premier League appearance he wasn't he was never competition for Aaron Ramsdale he was a backup and when he came into the team in cup games he the style of play like wasn't there in the same way you see City can play Ortega in instead of Edison yeah. and he plays the exact same way it doesn't compromise the approach at all the you know the calmness on the ball the ability to pick passes out in midfield and and really just help City control games Matt Turner didn't offer Arsenal that. And I think Arteta referenced the, the timber injury that sort of came out of nowhere uh, when David Raya, I know it was right before, right after the, the transfer was announced. And, you know, your goalkeeper can pick up an injury and be out for a few months. And I think Arsenal have at least made sure they're in a position where that wouldn't kill the season and kill the way that the team plays. Uh, and personally, I think it's a, a sort of a, a proper fight for the number one shirt. I, I think you always have to have a number one goalkeeper and it will, in the end, it will pan out that way. But I wouldn't be surprised to see David Raya play not just the cup games, but the, the Champions League games as well to start mm. the season. And at some point get an opportunity, whether it's through injury or Aaron Ramsdale makes an error or two. I think Raya will at some point become uh, get the chance to to become number one and sort of make that place his own. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's Urien Timber injury you mentioned there was a massive blow for Arsenal. You must be hoping though, Podrick, for a, uh, a remontada from your mate Kieran Tierney, eh? No, not quite actually. The the less remontada is, the the more chance he has of coming back home. So <laughs> it suits me just fine, actually. We need a left back, so but yeah, it's a shame with him to be honest. Yeah. Speaking of uh, your mates, actually, let's uh, let's move across North London now to Spurs, who've made a decent start under Ange Postacoglu. Have you uh, have you watched their game so far? Have you seen much that you kind of recognise from his Celtic days? And what do you think Spurs can expect from Ange? I've seen little bits through the tears that were filling my eyes as I watched <laughs> them uh, run Man United off the park in the second half last week. Um, yeah, I've been impressed. Um, surprised, to be honest, that <clears throat> they were that good so fast because that was a big thing when he came to Celtic. I think Celtic maybe won one or two out of the first six games. Like He started really poorly and you could see what he wanted to do, but uh, the players weren't quite up to speed, whereas 
I mean, the Brentford game, they did look a little bit more disjointed. And uh, maybe it says more about Man United, to be honest, that Brentford caused Spurs a lot more problems than they did, um, even without Ivan Tony in the team. But against Man United, uh, yeah, it was it was a lot more like it. I think there's still, definitely still like teething problems there. And I think you see a lot of Spurs fans kind of seem to be getting really carried away really early with that. And I don't know, I think like, Bruno Fernandes missed like a huge chance at 0-0. Anthony hit the post at 1-0. There was, I know Spurs were unlucky as well hitting the woodwork at times, but I mean, I think a better team than Man United um, will really hurt Spurs, um, to be honest. I think they still look a bit suspect um, at the back. Uh, the full-backs, I think, still it's not really um, what you expect from him yet. Obviously, with the, the inverted fullback system that he plays but I mean mm. yeah like to be honest I'm I've been impressed with him so far because if nothing else like I think just watching one of his teams it's going to be fun and you saw that in both the games so far and even there'll be games against better teams like I say where I think it won't go so well for them but yeah it's going to be a lot of fun I think at Spurs this season I think he just needs to sort out the the centre forward thing because so far Richarlison hasn't looked um, quite up to it and obviously he's mm. a massive strop as well at the, the weekend when he came <laughs> off which I don't think will yeah. go down too well either so that might be something that they still need to look at um, before the transfer window closes. Yeah that, that Richardson thing was weird I thought like he's not really added much in those two games so far and then you get really really annoyed about coming off it's like well you're not performing, so yeah, I know. I definitely wouldn't have been drawing attention to my performance <laughs> like that. If... What was it? One Premier League goal last season. Yeah, yeah uh, well, and a more few that were, than goals. A few that were offside, right? Um, yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, it, it's an odd one, and, and I agree. I like there's, I, you can see what Postecoglou wants to do at Spurs, um, but doing it at Celtic, where you've got the best players in the league and doing it at Tottenham where you've got maybe the sixth, seventh best squad in the league. I think it's, a, it's obviously a completely different kettle of fish. They they look really open at the back and they look like they don't quite have the cutting edge going forward. As Podrick said, I think it'd be really exciting and I think there's going to be a lot of goals at both ends. But I don't know, sort of with this set of players, how far he can he can take them, you know, without a major overhaul and a sort of two, three more transfer windows at, at the other end of that game, Podrick and, and Dan as well. Um, <laughs> Man United have not looked good at all in these two games so far. I think they could have, to be fair, they could have been ahead at half time. They could have been comfortably yeah, ahead been. Yeah. on uh, at, at YR Lane. But other than that, they, again, they look wide open. They look like teams can play through them quite easily. They, the, the pressing looks off. I don't know, Dan, if you're watching that, sort of rubbing your hands together, but uh, I'm not seeing not very much so, I'm yeah. not seeing much from Manchester United uh in terms of improvement. It looks like they've gone back from the end of last season. Yeah, it's weird because you know Casemiro was so good for them last season and so crucial to the way that's kind of transformation from that early part of the season when they when they struggled. And he's just looked all at sea the last couple of games. I think he's been dribbled past the most out of any midfielder in the Premier League so far. Bruno Fernandez is throwing a strop everywhere. Yes. Anthony, where have they got him from? Like 
he's rubbish, isn't he? Like, I'm not being speaking out of turn to say that. He is really bad, Anthony. Like, I've not seen anything in the time that he's been there to convince me. You know, Mason Mount, I was not entirely convinced by that transfer. You know, I don't haven't seen much from him so far. I know it's only two games into the season. There's plenty of time. Uh, Rashford looks a bit isolated up front. I think he himself has said that he doesn't really see himself as a central striker. And yet, there he is still player there. Obviously, they've got um, Hoy... Uh, what's his name? Um, Hoyland, I was going to say Hoybiag, he plays for Spurs, doesn't he? Uh, they've got him to come in still. Um, but yeah, you know, I, th- I thought they were really poor against Wolves. I thought they were probably a bit better against Spurs, if anything, but uh, still lost the game. So it's not looking good for them, but yeah, it is early days yet, of course. Maybe uh, maybe McFred deserved a lot more respect than they got. <laughs> no, maybe I so, yeah. They've been dribbled through as easily as, <laughs> as the rest of them. But yeah, no, you're yeah, 100% right. I couldn't agree more on Anthony. I think... Um, He's one, he's looked like so bad, but he doesn't seem to get talked about all that much. I think he's almost like a forgotten guy. And it's easy to forget, I think, that he was like, was it 100 million or close to 100 million? 100 million million euros, I think. Yeah, or euros, sorry. Yeah. And just, yeah, he seems to have, so far, I mean, I'm sure it will change because he just doesn't look up to it yet. But yeah, seems to be getting away with, with it a little bit so far. Whereas like someone like Sancho, who's obviously arrived for less money, but maybe a, a lot bigger reputation, kind of, yeah, seemed to be getting a lot more stick last season than he did. Yeah, they have this unerring habit, United, of sort of making these signings that look really good when it happens. I mean, who would have predicted that Sancho would have flopped when he came from Dortmund yeah. after how well he did there? And yet it just doesn't seem to work out. And you think, what what's wrong? Why not? I don't get it, really. There was a really nice article just going back to the midfield as well. Um, Jamie Carragher wrote a piece before the weekend, uh, I think the Telegraph, basically just saying like Casemiro, like why did they buy Casemiro when everybody around them this summer has gone and, I mean, City already had Rodri, obviously, uh, but Arsenal have gone and spent 105 million on Declan Rice in that position, a player that's going to sort of last you seven, eight, maybe 10 years. Chelsea with Enzo Fernandez and, and Moises Caicedo, um, who Liverpool wanted as well. They obviously have sort of seen that need in that position. I think it's a position that's become quite a specialist position in football and there aren't that many players who can play it at the absolute highest level. And United went and dropped 70 million on a guy who has been world-class for years, but he's going to do the job for maybe like three years and then they're going to have to go and do it all over again and, and go and find somebody. And I think that sort of sums that club up and their approach up sometimes. And it's sort of, you know, go and buy the shiny thing, the big name and sort of keep the fans happy, keep the fans on side, show them and that you know how big Manchester United is and how big the names have to be at Manchester United. But then, as Podrick said, you know, McTominay, Fred were in there alongside him for a lot of last season. Christian Eriksen at times, who's dropped back and back as, as his career's gone on. It feels like, you know, not only is Casemiro getting older and obviously physically there is going to be some level of decline at some point, And it feels like they're just giving him more to do than ever now by trying to play him with Mount and Fernandes in the same midfield. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of tempted to go in a little bit on Moises Caicedo after his uh, Jonathan Woodgate-esque <laughs> nightmare debut for Chelsea at the weekend. But I think we'll uh, we'll part that one for now because he has only played about 30 minutes yeah. of football. But yeah, that's uh, that's a strange one. But, uh, you know, one team that we certainly can go in on, I think it's, uh, it's fair to do so, is Everton, who've made a pretty shocking start to the season. I thought they were actually all right against Fulham in the first game, still lost, um, had loads of chances, missed loads of chances. Against uh, Aston Villa last weekend, they were absolutely awful all over the place. It's uh, it's dire straits for them, isn't it, Podri? Do you think Deitch could be the first manager on the chopping block if things don't improve sharpish? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it could be, obviously, but 
then then where do they go then from there? I was quite surprised that they didn't just move on in the summer. Like he did the job, kept them up, yeah, and uh, go in a different direction. But I mean, to to be like, don't think he's had it difficult. Like even what I think it was fifteen minutes into that Villa game, and Calvert Lewin's picked up another injury and. I think even when he went off, you could see. I think he must have been getting abuse from Everton fans as he went off because he kind of was mm. giving it a bit of a sarcastic applause back to them. I think obviously they're just fed up with him and the fact that he's just never fit anymore. I mean, did you see his face? Yeah, I know. Yeah, well, I don't know. <laughs> what's he supposed to do about that? It's not as if. Yeah, I know, but I think it was obviously just. Yeah, it's a accumulation, isn't it? There, yeah. It was just yeah, another injury to, to frustration to. is one thing, yeah. but like he doesn't want this either. Like, there's not yeah. abusing the guy. Yeah, no, and yeah, it's just you've got like Coleman's obviously still out. Um, although you could probably argue that Nathan Patterson should be in the team ahead of him anyway. But ugh, yeah, they were. It was. I actually found it really tough to watch that. It's just. Even mistakes like the Pickford one for the penalty, you're just like, what are you doing? Why are you getting involved in that? Um, all over the place. I think like I saw a lot of Everton fans actually um, giving Onana a lot of stick for. I think he obviously was getting linked with Man United and stuff last weekend. I think a lot of them were, would have been quite happy to drive him down the road, just saying that this is another guy who um, you can see it that he has a lot of ability, but the consensus seemed to be that he just. He'd stand out in a better team, but he doesn't really um, have what it takes to shine in a, in a really struggling Everton team where everyone else around him is struggling. And yeah, you look at that squad. I actually thought after what happened with Wolves that I kind of thought the third relegation place would maybe come down to, to those two. And having seen Wolves in the first game and how well they played, um, and then seeing Everton in their first two games, you'd be a lot more worried, I think, about Everton. Um, than Wolves, which I was quite surprised at when um, Lopetegui had left. But luckily, we'll get to find out this weekend because mm. of them play each other, and that is obviously that is going to be huge. Um, Earliest relegation six pointer in history. Yeah, we've actually be yeah, yeah, quite <laughs> excited about that one. Um, be classic Everton to go out and win it. I'm sure now. But, <laughs> I mean, they, they don't look like it. They, they really don't. They look short in every single area. Even the signings that they've made. Um, there's obviously that young striker out from Portugal who's not really done much yet. And then you're talk- they're talking about dropping fifteen million on Shea Adams, who like obviously plays for Scotland. I'm really big fan. He, he's he's probably better as like a supporting striker. Like he'll work really hard for the team and he's very selfless in that regard. But Everton need goals, and I don't see where the goals come from in that team. And Shea Adams, he's a probably a teammate striker rather than like a striker striker. I wouldn't be confident at him getting the goals you need especially at that money so uh, you could go on all day but I'd leave that for Joel <laughs> have a lot more fun with that one I'm sure yeah. Yeah, well yeah we've got to talk about Everton while we can because I don't know not just as a Premier League club but maybe as a football club we won't be able to talk about oh, yeah. much longer the way things are going financially at the club as well investors pulling out you know, they're obviously in the middle of trying to build a new stadium um it's very hard to find anything to be positive about and, and optimistic about. Dan mentioned it earlier, obviously. Podrick, while you've, we've got you here, we've got to talk about Serie A and the new season. So, like, 
how right am I? Because I'm looking at the, the squads, I'm looking at the transfer business that's been done this season, and I can't look past the Milan clubs for potential title contenders. Yeah, I'd, I think Inter are probably the the big favourites this season. Uh, it feels feels quite harsh to, to kind of write Napoli off, but a lot of people seem to be doing it. I think the Spalletti thing is just so big. Obviously, they lost their coach in the summer, but at the same time... Napoli have kept their two best players who were being linked with everyone all over Europe. But then they did also lose uh, their best defender. Obviously, Kim Min Jae went to Bayern. But yeah, I, th- I think they'll be thereabouts. But I think you're right. I think Inter will be... I'd probably have them down as favourites, to be honest. Um, I think they didn't really get the the respect they probably deserved last season. I mean, they got to the Champions League final and were quite unlucky maybe not to at least take that to extra time. Um, Milan's a bit of a, a weirder one. They've had like a strange window. Obviously, they sacked Maldini at the end of last season, who was kind of in charge of the transfers. And then this summer, they've, they've gone quite big on younger players or players maybe that have faded a little bit recently, like Pulisic, who scored on his debut an amazing goal. Uh, the, the really exciting one for them, probably, to be honest, is they've signed a Dutch midfielder from uh, AZ, Tiani Reinders, and he's looked amazing in pre-season, looked amazing in the first game of the season. Apparently, he was the first player ever to have 100% passing accuracy on his debut in Serie A, yeah. so that's, that's quite exciting um, addition there. And he was obviously one of the ones who did kind of just took a bit of a gamble on Um yeah, and I hate to hate to say it, but I would not be ruling you day out of it either, to be honest. They looked they looked really good in their first game. They blew Danese away early. Obviously they don't have um Europe to, to worry about this season. Not I mean that they were kicked out, obviously not that they failed to qualify. Um and yeah, they, they just seem like, you know, one of those where they've kind of got the, the world's out to get us mentality after everything that happened with Europe and all of that um, from last season. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't be ruling them out of it quite yet either, um, much as it pains me. <laughs> you mentioned uh, Pulisic. Uh, he scored on his debut for Milan the other night, didn't he? Is, uh, is Serie A going to be a bit more suited to his game than the Premier League perhaps was, do you think? Yeah, I think so. Because like, Pioli was talking after the first game as well and it seems like he's, he's not just going to view him as like just the out and out right winger to to basically do maybe some of the the harder graft that when Liao on the other side, everything used to go through him um the last few years for Milan. Like that was that was a the big gaping hole in Milan's attack was down that right wing. That's where he played on his debut and was yeah, he was the man of the match. Like he was excellent. But purely after the game said, No, we're quite happy that if we have to shake things up, like Pulisic can play as a as a 10, Pulisic, he could play as a false nine through the middle. Obviously, Olivier Giroud um, is getting older, still looks good. I mean, in Serie A, age isn't really a factor, I suppose. <laughs> but then they've also added in those areas as well, like Chuck Wazy's come in from Villarreal. He can, he's a bit of the same, can play anywhere across that front line. Uh, Okafor, who's another exciting talent from Salzburg. So they seem to have almost like Arsenal in the Premier League, I guess, where they've they've brought in these guys who are capable of playing a lot of different positions who then can give you a lot of different options. And Pulisic, the, the main one of them, he's probably the, the, 
most exciting player they've bought this summer. The the one with the the highest ceiling, I guess. And yeah, I mean, like if early days are anything to go by, I think everyone's excited. There was a report last week that since he signed, it's like almost fifty percent of the the jerseys that have been bought for Milan for this season have had his name on the back. So it's yeah, Pulisic fever's taken over already. <laughs> well, and then the other side of Milan, uh, Marcus Turam is. I guess been oh, yeah. signed to do his best possible Romano Lukaku impression alongside Lautaro <laughs> yeah. Martinez. Uh, like, I get well, you're tipping into for the league, so I guess you're seeing that working out pretty well. Yeah, like the, well, the first game the, the two of them played up front together, and they did throughout preseason a bit as well. And it looks it looks quite exciting. And like you'd have seen more of them probably than I would have from being in the Bundesliga and. Uh, and like not just him, I think like from losing Andre Onana, I think for the the price that they paid, I think Jan Song was an absolutely mm. brilliant bit of business there um, as their new goalkeeper as well. You do really well. They've just, I think they've just added really, really smartly this summer. Into they've they've kept um, pretty much all of the the big name Lukaku, kind of being the only only one that got away, and it it never really seemed too likely that he was going to come back. But then you don't know that they need him. I think Lotaro's kind of taking on this uh the role of like the leader of the team he's the captain now as well and he's he really seems to be relishing that i think he wants to be like the main man that he he never kind of was when Lukaku was there he was always both like off the field and and on it as well he was always kind of second fiddle to him um playing the kind of supporting role and he he just seems to be relishing that now i think the last like three years in Serie A now nobody has more goals than him which maybe I guess it'd be quite a surprising start when you think like the form that Immobile and stuff like that was in, but Ossiman as well and Ronaldo when he was there. So he's kind of, I think he's taken his game to the next level and it's good to see somebody like that stay in the league because, yeah, like the last few years, it just seems like these kind of players, they're always heading off somewhere else. And I mean, it's not ideal that maybe he is one of the marquee names in the league now because I guess outside of Serie A, which is probably fair enough that he's he's not viewed as one of like the game's kind of elite centre forwards, but I think he probably is like surely up there. And then it's, it's not just there with Inter. I think like Barella's. I think me and Dan were even talking about him the other day. Like one of the most underrated midfielders in the game, and you've guys all over the back as well, like Dumfries and Bastoni, who yeah, like excellent talents that that Inter have done well to hold on to. So yeah, I'd, like that's obviously why I make them the the favourites to win it but it's like Serie A and like the last I think it the last four years there's been four different winners so you can't really predict anything with any confidence I mean Mourinho's probably due a run at the at the title as well but well I'll not be predicting <laughs> that one now. <laughs> Another interesting uh, transfer that caught my eye this summer in Serie A was uh, Charles de Catalera and uh, thanks to Derek Ray on FIFA for the uh, pronunciation help there because uh, <laughs> I would have called him Charles otherwise. Uh, he's gone to Atalanta after, uh, you know, joined, he joined Milan, was it last summer from um, Club Brucca and didn't really work out, did it, for, for whatever reason. I think he's gone to Atalanta on loan, scored on his debut. Is that a, a good move for him, do you think, Pod, that's going to bring the, the best out of him? Yeah, I mean, like obviously you said, scored on his debut um Probably should have had another one as well, to be honest. Um, but yeah, just see, I'm surprised that Milan were so quick to to cut their losses on him. But I wonder if maybe it's part of, like I mentioned earlier, about the relationship with Maldini really soured. And I think he was a bit, he was Maldini's kind of poster boy, or he was the one that Maldini really pushed for after they won the Scudetto to, 
to kind of kick on, take them to the next level in the Champions League. Um, he'd obviously impressed in that with Bruges in the past. Looked like he was going to be a really exciting player. But I'm, yeah, I'm quite surprised that after like a year they've kind of just cut a loss. But I mean, it's something, especially with these kind of like playmakers, it's it's not like a new thing with Milan. Like when Kaká left, they did it with Gurkuf. They brought him in with a lot of fanfare and then kind of got rid of him quite quickly. They did it with Paquita, like spent a lot on him. He was a popular player and then... Yeah, got quite frustrated with him after a while, sent him to Leon and I mean look, he's getting linked with like massive move to, to Man City now, he's clearly always a good player. So yeah, like with Dick Etelari, I think there's, there's obviously talent there and you just you really didn't see it though. And and I mean I guess that's where I suppose you have to cut the current board a bit of slack. Like any time he played last season he, he didn't look didn't look confident at all, didn't look really sure of himself in the system. He just there was with that and that Milan team, particularly when you had Brahim Diaz and stuff like kind of knocking on the door, and always it, it was tough. Anyway, you kind of had to take mm. those chances when they came, and he didn't really do it. But no, it was good to see him obviously scoring his debut. And I think in a team like Atalanta, he'll, he'll probably flourish. But I mean, it was the same with like last weekend. You had like like Bellotti as well at Roma. He's he's taken a lot of stick, a bit like De Ketelari did at Milan last season, and he's always started the season with a couple of goals as well, which which is good to see because. Tammy Abraham's out and Roma keep getting linked with strikers and I mean everyone they seem to turn to um, it doesn't doesn't quite pay off for one reason or another so maybe they'll actually put their faith in him as well this season and that that could that could work out well because I mean he's proven goal scorer in Serie A who yeah just didn't really get his chances last season with like injury Tammy Abraham uh, playing so well but I mean the, the door's open for him now so he's another one I think that can maybe be revitalised this season well that is all for this episode of the One Football Podcast thanks to Lewis Podrig and Alejandro for their interesting chat today we'll be back again next Thursday and if you'd like to get a question or a comment into the show the email address is podcast at onefootball.com bye for now